Is it okay if I just do this here? I feel yeah. kind of like gross doing no, that. No, I'm... Okay. okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Spencer. <laughs> <laughs> this is Van Collar. We're at the West Coast. My name is Mo Amir, and today on This is Van Color, I'm joined by a lecturer of sociology and anthropology at my alma mater, Simon Fraser University. Her research interests include care, labor, feelings, which, as you may know, is my favorite topic, <laughs> reproduction, disability, and media representation of maternal labor and identity. She teaches on global problems and the culture of capitalism politics of family and the formation of self and identity in contemporary Western culture. I don't know how we're not best friends already, but I'm going to make that happen today. She recently released her book, The Juggling Mother, Coming Undone in the Age of Anxiety, which we will explore a little today. She is here. She is Dr. Amanda Watson. Amanda, how are you? Oh, so nice to meet you. You have such an awesome voice. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Sitting here with an awesome, like a big smile on my face. Uh, I'm not bad. That's good to hear. Yeah. (laughs) I asked that question at the start of every podcast, but through this pandemic, it has taken on a much more genuine concern. And so I'm asking you, but I'm also asking the juggling mother, how are you? If I had to speak on behalf of all juggling mothers, <laughs> uh, I would say we're not great as a as a bunch. <laughs> uh, tired, you know, like this has been a major public health crisis. And now, mm-hmm. as we know, a big mental health crisis, especially for mothers, especially for mothers of young kids and school-aged kids. The, the support systems that we need to raise kids in the village, you know, are just are ripped away or, or at least precarious. They're not bad in BC, but mm-hmm. um, they're quite bad in other places in Canada. So I think, yeah, burnt out. I would answer burnt <laughs> out, a little bit sure. overwhelmed, um, kind of blue, a little depressed. Yeah. And I wrestle with some of these feelings too, um, but I have a decent setup. So just sort of plugging away and, and staying interested in public feelings that other people are having since that's such an area of interest for me. Mm-hmm. I think what's interesting is... Obviously, there are varying degrees of challenges that everyone has depending on your situation, but everyone is kind of down and and everyone is kind of on the coaster as well. So maybe you're normal for a few weeks or a month or whatever, and then, you know, everyone kind of hits a wall and you're kind of down again. And that seems to be the general feel that I get when I talk to just my own circles or just, you know, guests of the podcast. Yeah, I totally agree. I even find now... Uh, maybe we're in like the season of depression, like that mm. part of the the pandemic, I think, relative to the extreme stress of the early pandemic right. and like the anxiety that 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 kind of sunk in in the fall as cases started to climb again. But I find like day to day, like I can be like, hey, today it's sunny. I'm a person I'm doing my things. <laughs> yeah. And the next day I'm like, I cannot work. I cannot be a person <laughs> like it just like the, the fallout can be day to day. And. On the topic of anxiety, obviously, there is this light at the end of the tunnel when it comes to the pandemic, but it's still a far ways away. Right? Yeah. And I think there was that moment where everyone was very excited and then everyone just kind of sunk back and goes, oh, yeah, OK, we still have to wait a little while. <laughs> totally. I was actually just talking to my classes this week because we just got back in session this week up at SFU and, mm-hmm. and you know, the how are you question <laughs> is put to the students. Yeah. We all had like fitness goals and cooking goals and all kinds of stuff in May, you know, when it was like, hey, I'm working from home now. I'm going to I'm going to get new curtains and (laughs) whatever. And now it just feels like we're in the tunnel, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like we're not like I wore jeans for a long time in this pandemic and I don't wear jeans that often anymore. (laughs) Yeah. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going through your book, The Juggling Mother Coming Undone in the Age of Anxiety. And it's kind of like reading the antithesis to Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In. And I was reminded of this Ali Wong joke, and I'm going to butcher it, but it's something along the lines of like, lean in, I just want to lie down. Because I saw Ali Wong live with my friend Jolene, who is a mother, and I remembered that bit, and I remembered Jolene like leaning over and whispering, that is on point, we're already leaning in. and. Where Sandberg 
was sort of giving advice to a very specific audience of women in the corporate world, particularly, you kind of step back and look at the whole system and culture and go, whoa, you guys, this is broken. If it's fair to contrast the two, and and I know you talk about Sandberg and, and leaning in in your book, can you broadly give me the idea of what she's representing in mainstream culture and what your response is? Well, that was an awesome little nugget of like, that was a great summary. Thank you for that. I'm glad I'm going to have a record of this. Uh, yeah. So I, I remember when Sandberg came out with that book and when she came out with her popular TED talk, I sort of illustrate that in the book. Mm-hmm. I describe that. And um, I was in my early 20s or mid 20s and I, I was excited for her to say something radical, mm-hmm. you know, and I thought, I don't know how I'm going to reconcile these competing obligations that I have. And I don't know how I'm you know, going to individually smash a glass ceiling. The job market looks bleak. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she disappointed me yeah. by pointing to all of us and um, giving us advice on how to change our individual behaviors. So my entry point um, for the book and for that critique is that making recommendations to individuals is not only not helping, it's harming. Hmm. So if we... I mean, it's not difficult in like the mom internet to come across a headline telling you something to do, you know, like tips and tricks are everywhere and we want them. Like, it's like, sure. cool, what are other people doing? My God, how are we keeping this together? But I, I, I really um, criticize that culture, the like tell women what to do culture or make individual representations, make individual women into these overachievers and mm-hmm. overworkers um, and these self-disciplined subjects. Uh, because it not only doesn't change things, it keeps things the same. So it maintains status quo hierarchies of inequality. So the women who can lean in, who are, are affluent or able-bodied or you know have any kind of host of privileges, mm-hmm. um, they suffer. They're tired. Yeah, you know, in in pursuit of this sort of like ideal of um, having it all or whatever. Um, and also they don't keep the door open for others, right? Like it's an individualist pursuit. Right. So even if they succeed, <laughs> they have a shitty life and <laughs> and and they keep things the way they are. And I think we're at a moment, I mean, maybe we have been for decades where we agree culturally that that's unacceptable. But I think people don't understand the extent to which they're complicit in these hierarchies Mm -hmm. at times, you know. So I want you to reiterate that as a thesis statement, because this is out of my wheelhouse. I think that's very self-evident. This podcast has grazed the topic of working moms with Karen Kunkun and Tamara Taggart speaking to their own experiences. So if you can sort of summarize the main argument of your book, and I think you kind of made it there, but just very succinctly. Sure. Uh, I would say that this mother who appears to be fully expended, you know, she's, she's busy, she's juggling, she's, she's exchanging her labor for pay, she's, mm. she's doing unpaid work, she is exploited and doing harm. So that's, I think, the controversial part of the argument, that mm-hmm. it's unfair that this subject, that this person uh, has to take on too much and has to like take on the responsibility that maybe the state would, you know, to make things feel all better in sure. times when they're not okay, especially now in COVID, you know, make the magic of Christmas at times when we all just want to fall apart. <laughs> uh, and in putting our head down, and working hard in all of those ways and just taking care, she is not activating uh, for social justice or social change. Mm-hmm. So it's this really like double-barreled kind of argument. Like yeah. we know that that's unfair um, and we know that there are ways out of this um, overwork for women, but we've been fighting this for a half century. <laughs> you know, like it's been decades of research where that we're like, we know this. And I guess that, that guided my research. The fact that we seem to be stuck mm-hmm. on this conversation and in recommendations of work-life balance and stuff like that. Like right. I, that's what I, um, that was the burning that's such curiosity. That's great mani- managerial talk, right? Work-life balance. How do we achieve work-life balance? <laughs> yeah, like go to yoga and whatever. And like I have have received advice like that in my life and been able to put it into practice mm-hmm. and actually feel a little better. But like I have 
the reins of power in so many ways in my life that a lot of people don't. Mm -hmm. So typically when we're talking about work-life balance, this is part of the thesis, um, we're talking about women in um, professional roles, typically actually like entrepreneurial um, or managerial or leadership positions. Mm -hmm. Um, We're not typically talking about the juggle that women need to do when they work like two or three part-time jobs and take transit in between them and have no flexibility. Right. So let's get into that and let's kind of break this down step by step so that I can understand. Because again, this is very much out of my wheelhouse. Who is the juggling mother? Okay. So close your eyes. (laughs) (laughs) They're closed. (laughs) Okay. okay. Um, So she's who you picture. She's splashed on magazine covers um, billboards, you know, ads, film and television spots, uh, even public health campaigns. But what I argue in studying these representations is she's not just a busy mother. Mm-hmm. She's busy in service to this kind of like efficient capitalist productivity. And by that, I mean, like, we don't typically see represented like the activist right? Or like uh, a foster mom, you know, people who are like filling the gaps in our welfare state, in our society Mm. and keeping community together. We typically see represented folks like Sheryl Sandberg. We see like fit, attractive, often white women who are affluent, who are typically married to men who are also professionals. It's actually a very narrow representation. This doesn't surprise most people, sure, right? Yeah. But when you actually like collect all of the images together, it's kind of striking yeah. um, to see that like we have this ideal subject very clearly in our culture. And so she's someone who's like not ruffling the feathers of people who have power. Mm. Even if even if she's like, I'm smashing the glass ceiling, I'm going to be CEO of a bank. Like, okay, is that resistant? We're creating female CEOs of banks. Like, (laughs) you know, it's not, she's not problematizing the way we organize money or work or or working conditions for the average person. Um, So she's doing that while also never dropping the ball in terms of family obligations. Right. And this doesn't look like it used to in terms of what we expect of women. Like we don't expect the mothers who are working 70 hours a week to also be cooking scratch, you know, meals from scratch I mean, maybe we wish that that were true, and we certainly give them advice as if they had the time. But we also don't punish women the way I think we used to for outsourcing stuff. Mm. You can have a meal prep kit. You can have a nanny. But women are still ultimately responsible for keeping that household together. Right. Whether it's the management work or the emotional labor, um, if, if the ball is dropped or the kitchen looks crappy, it's not the man's fault. Right. And is it one of those things where men then get the seal clap when they like walk their kid to school and what a great dad. (laughs) It's like, whereas it's very much just expectant of the the mother to do that. Right. Totally. I I kind of explain it as like this default expectation in our culture. Mm -hmm. We still expect women um, to do unpaid work. And in fact, what I have been arguing throughout the pandemic after we saw uh, new data on women leaving the workplace is that not only is it a default expectation that women will do this unwaged work of caregiving, it's also the expectation that we have in our society that women will just pivot to where we need them. Right. <laughs> so if we think back to like war efforts, right? Like mm-hmm. suddenly it's okay for women to come to work because we need them in this effort, right? Right. Then we needed women at home. Then in the 80s, families needed dual incomes because of inflation in the economy, right? Like we needed women Mm -hmm. to be able to pivot. So I don't know. We hear a lot about chalking these um, gains up to like feminist activism. But I think we have seen through COVID, especially as women have done this pivot and somehow worked like two full-time jobs when kids are at home, um, that, that the expectation and maybe the way they and what they expect of themselves is um, to fill the gaps. You talk about a performative aspect of the juggling mother. Can you explain that? Yeah, to define the juggling mother was really tricky for me in my work uh, because I realized um, in describing this person and critiquing media representation of maternal labor that I was still trying to pull it off, you know? Like I was still (laughs) trying to pass as this person who could 
have a thriving household and a badass career. Right. Like, I so did you're not, a ju- juggling mother totally, yourself. Totally, yeah. totally. And like I and I have definitely passed on opportunities to let other people in mm-hmm. out of a sense of competitiveness in myself, you know, and like just look feeling the need to look out for myself in an individualist, like competitive field. Mm-hmm. And that's totally legitimate. Like I try not to beat myself up for having those feelings. Sure. But I I definitely am like living that that trope a little bit. Um so the performative aspect, what I'm referring to is how in our social interactions and in our interactions with people, we're sort of like constructing our identity and mm-hmm. constructing our relationships, constructing our world. And so when I went back to work after my first mat leave, which was really tricky as I was coming to terms with my new identity as a mom, I was never even sure I liked that label. <laughs> I wanted to be this sort of powerhouse academic. Um, I would kind of choose what I showed to people mm. in our little micro interactions. So I would say things like, oh yeah, like baby was up a lot last night. And but I wouldn't say things like, yeah, the baby was up till two and I was so like tired. I just decided to open a bottle of wine. I stayed up till five. I'm not prepped at all for today. I'm gonna cancel my meetings later. Like <laughs> there are things I would not say. Right. So we're all doing that all the time, right? Like we're all kind of like performing our identity. So it's not that it's like uh you know, it's not that we're lying. Mm-hmm. It's that we're constructing our subjectivities through interacting with people. And I talk about this like need for women to perform this adept juggling work to be seen as valuable in our culture, mm-hmm. right? Like she, we figured her out. She's she's a normal woman because she has kids and she has a nurturant side and she does this care work and she's also a valuable, flexible, reliable, responsible worker. <laughs> so I sort of say like that's the bind for women. They're, yeah. they're glued to this performance of both. Mm-hmm. That's the expectation. And I've talked about this one idea quite a bit on the podcast and on the radio as well, but this idea of like toxic positivity and this the way you're describing it seems to be very tied to this idea of toxic positivity where you're not being authentic with how you're feeling or your experiences, but you are sort of being truthful, except in a super positive spin type way. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. Like you, you do have to be positive, but you also kind of get extra, extra credit for revealing how much you can do, you know? Right, okay. Like I, I feel like I was kind of like, I felt like the shit when I was rolling in and being like, (laughs) I'm just going to take on all these meetings and everybody knows I have a newborn. Like, I felt pretty amazing in that performance, you know, like Mm -hmm. I felt like it almost proved just how resilient and capable I was. And and so my critique of that cultural culture is how ableist that is. Right. Like in order for women to be seen and valued, they need to accomplish this much. And it's also true that, like, so this is where the kind of controversial part of the argument comes in. If women like me are so stuck on this idea of success, Mm -hmm. guess who can't perform this way, right? Like, mothers who are already under skepticism because they're being discriminated against Mm -hmm. for their race or class or gender presentation. Uh, So it's a kind of a... Only some women have permission to behave this way in the first place. Right. And so that's the complicity in how this whole system works and how labor is organized. That's right. It's crappy. Like, <laughs> it's crappy because I have to, like, reconcile that in myself, too. Like, how how much I want to do this. And I don't want to feel shame about the fact that I'm, you know, only looking out for myself and my family often. But so long as women with means keep doing that. Mm-hmm. Maybe a sidebar, maybe zooming out too much. But I just wonder... How much of this is different than the sense that we're all complicit in how labor is organized? And what I mean by this is we're all guilty of buying and consuming products that are made from terrible labor conditions or unsustainable environmental practices, or that just contribute to this unhealthy system as a whole. So is this related? Is this part of that? Where, where do you see that in the whole system? Oh, that's a really great parallel. It's tricky. I, I, I think that that is, uh, yeah, it, it, that, that's relevant. Like, you live in this world. 
I, I try to tell my students because I teach a class on capitalist culture and we talk about consumer desire. I'm like, mm-hmm. you know, like we don't want people to become apathetic if they leave their plastic bag at home and then feel like guilt and shame about that and then stop caring. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. um, so in in the same way, I think women, it's not it's not our fault as individuals that we're we're in these positions and that these are the these are the slate of choices in front of us. Mm-hmm. Um, but similarly, like I guess the harm is when we think we're doing good. Mm-hmm. And and can't come up for air and look around at our complicity. So uh, so I think where I would push um, that analogy is, you know, if if in being a consumer in this world, like we all are, we go to Whole Foods and then think we've done enough activism for the day, right? <laughs> That's, That's what like, I do. <laughs> is that wrong? Am I doing it wrong? <laughs> Yeah, you're doing environmentalism wrong. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like if we get warm and fuzzies because we make some like benevolent choices to buy organic food mm-hmm. as individuals, that, that's similar to the kind of harm that could be done if women who like fight for their right to be the CEO of a bank feel like they've done feminism that day. Right. You know what I mean? Like this is not the kind of thing that's going to make the structural changes that I think there's appetite for. Yeah. So it's not that we should feel guilty and... um overwhelmed as individuals but that Mm -hmm. we should kind of reflect on how we're conditioned to feel good when we make certain choices and feel bad when we make other ones so in in that in that sense it's similar and so that's actually why i thought we were going to be best friends because i love (laughs) this idea of instead of blaming the individual because you can sit here and go how many terrible things were involved in making this iphone right and you can guilt me for that absolutely or you and i can sit together and look at the structures of trade and capitalism and manufacturing and globalization as a whole that led to this being the efficient product that we all now need effectively, right? So I like looking at those structures and the culture as opposed to like, you know, demonizing the the, the individual. individual. Yeah. And I think we've seen this, to, to look at that parallel, like we've seen this in, in environmentalism where it's like, we're not going to stop global climate change from telling people to use reusable bags like there has to be a, Law a structural and state shift. intervention yeah. yeah totally totally and I, I think that actually is like quite a liberating idea you know that like i'm not going to do this on my own and and in my life um to belong in this social you know milieu i need a smartphone and and i'm going to get the iphone and like these are the choices that are in front of me and mm-hmm. yeah there, there there are choices we can make that are better than others maybe and the way i i tend to measure them both in like my life as a working mom and also as like a kind of person who's concerned about, concerned about the climate is like for, according to my own cognitive dissonance. Like if I stop bringing a cloth bag, will that feel bad to me because I'll feel like I've given up? Yeah, I'm going to try to bring a cloth bag because that feels better. It feels better right. when I have my mug because I don't have to feel that kind of like sick, like, oh, my God, we're all just going down like the planet's burning and I'm, you know, part of that. Mm-hmm. I get to feel a little bit OK, but I'm not going to let myself celebrate that that's enough. So, right. it's, so yeah. it's, it's it's tension. It's 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 a tension for sure. But yeah. but I have found it actually kind of empowering just to think. I'm not going to be able to do this as an individual. So until flights are grounded, mm-hmm. if I need to go, you know, travel to see my family, I'm going to do that. Sure. Which I criticized quite a bit, actually, on the Did radio. You? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going right now, <laughs> to be clear. I haven't seen my family. <laughs> uh, no judgment. No judgment. In your book, you talk about this idea of coming undone, and it's in the title. This was a really big idea. What did what did you mean by this? How can we sort of summarize or encapsulate what this means? Yeah, I, I think if I were to write it now, I'd have a lot more to say, actually, because <laughs> I feel like many of us have, can relate to this sensation of overwhelm, mm-hmm. you know, and, and feeling like we're on the brink of coming unraveled with our emotions at times. It's just that. It's like a sense of kind of falling apart and feeling like maybe this time... I will make a mistake that I can't come back from. That sense of kind of like the combination of stress and anxiety and maybe depression uh, and just busyness that that overwhelms and and makes so you, you feel, feel a like little out of your mind. Breaking point. Yeah, like you feel like you're you're kind of like always kind of gliding up against that breaking point. And this is an experience of the juggling mother. I think so. And you know, since I wrote the book, I hit burnout uh, this past summer. And so now I might describe it as 
a pre-burnout feeling hmm. of like you're white knuckling through. You've got these maybe signals in your body or whatever that are telling you like this isn't a good way to live. Like you're really tired and you're really <laughs> stressed and you're having insomnia about bizarre things. Um, and maybe you, you can't you can't go on forever like that. Yeah. And so, again, it takes me back to that toxic positivity idea, because obviously we all find ourselves in that state. But I think there's a difference when you can admit, hey, I need a breather. I need to stop for a second versus I'm going to push through. Everything's all right. Uh, you know, I'm doing the right thing. You know, there's a there's a marked difference between those two things. And you're describing that ladder of just pushing through with a smile and trying to get things done, right? Yeah, it's a real sensation, but it also goes back to that performance part, like mm. which is related, I think, to what you mean by toxic positivity. Mm-hmm. We, we like, I think, I mean, the evidence in popular media is that like we celebrate people who are on the brink, but who never actually screw up <laughs> because they look like they're fully expending themselves, right? Yeah. Like that's who you want to, like, you know, the quote, like the the saying, um, if you want something done well, give it to a busy person. Right. Like the cult of busy, yeah. you know? Like, so the, so coming undone was both something that I was legiti- legitimately feeling as the mom of like a newborn um, returning to work, but also something that I was aware that I could perform in a way, like I could allude to that without it threatening, uh, you know, like child services you know aren't gonna they're not gonna show up at my door mm-hmm. um because of because i'm having these feelings and it also kind of felt good you know it felt like i was doing right by um society's expectations of me to be on the brink of falling apart with how much i was trying yeah that work ethic you know yeah yeah there is that culture of being performatively busy too right and you yes i mean i'm guilty of it as well where so, oh, how's it going? Oh, you know, keeping busy, but keeping well, whatever. And it, yeah, that's, I've never thought about that, but this is this weird thing that we're all ingrained with to tell each other how busy we are. <laughs> yeah. I've seen, I've seen some pushback. Exactly. I've seen some pushback against this kind of cult of busy, this like, you know, in, in the kind of mom blogosphere, it's like, like, let's stop responding to each other this way. Yeah. But I think it speaks to what we value in our society, right? Like we, mm-hmm. we find busy people to be, exciting, interesting, and valuable and like worthwhile because they're hustling, like hustle culture. I had a student write a great paper about this in the last semester in this class on capitalism. She was just like, that's a word that has come to mean good things. um, Right. About someone's personality and um, their value to us. Does that click with us on like a psychological level or is it cultural? Oh, I think both. Like I, okay. I sort of, the way I study feelings, like I'm not a psychologist, but I, I study like feelings that I think are kind of like shared um, in general in the public. So I'm like, I'm loving thinking about how people are feeling in the pandemic, for mm-hmm. example, because we're kind of like having this shared experience. Uh, so in terms of hustle culture, like I have to admit, I find it compelling. Like I, I want to be known as someone who hustles. Yeah. Sounds good. You know, it yeah. sounds like it's related to fitness. It's related to <laughs> entrepreneurship, aptitude, yeah. entrepreneurship. Yeah. Like getting those dollars. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like seriously. Right? Um, it sounds good. It's also obviously culturally appropriative, right? Like um, coming from black culture, yeah. the idea of like being a hustler, uh, which white culture loves to do um, yeah. when it comes to like coining new values. Hustler right? was like a bad word at a, at a certain yeah, point. Like, right. And, pejorative too yeah. right like the the implication that uh you're involved in like the informal economy in ways that you shouldn't be mm-hmm. it's also that idea that if you ever say ah i'm bored it's like you're a fucking loser <laughs> like, yeah, what are you to- doing with your life totally. what are you complaining about being bored <laughs> yeah yeah and i wonder if like given young people today are in like inheriting this like super precarious economy and planet if it means even more yeah. You know, like, did we have to be known as hustlers in the 1950s when people could kind of just afford a living and work to live? Yeah. Or or is it something about the current moment where it's like, if you don't hustle, it's not guaranteed that you're going to make ends meet. Yeah. You know? I want to talk about something that might appear in the mom blogosphere. I don't actually know, but I'm going to guess it's there. <laughs> you don't know the mom blogosphere? <laughs> no. Weird. No. <laughs> <laughs> so my mom passed away when I was 25. It was 11 years ago. And since then, you know, obviously I've had friends become parents and moms. I've dated a couple moms. Just in general, as an adult, there have been like more moms in my life and I've started noticing things. And and what I see is 
this sense of guilt, quote unquote, mommy guilt that pretty much every mother I've ever encountered bears. And it usually has to do with work and home life. And, you know, it actually makes me think about times where I recall my mom expressing that kind of guilt, not to me, but in different settings as well. And she always did it. She still always had a smile on her face and, you know, a lot of stuff that you're describing as well. Aside from Harry Chaplin's Cats in a Cradle, (laughs) why is this guilt so tied to women rather than men who I presume are also taking on a larger role in domestic labor as well? Like when I talk to my friends who are dads, they might express it here and there. So I don't know if it's them not expressing it or if it's just like, they don't feel guilt as, as much. W- what are your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, first of all, I'm so sorry for your loss, you know, to lose your mother in your 20s. That must have been a really challenging time. Um, interesting to reflect back on it now. Yeah, you know, I've... Uh, and th- I, this I don't think is toxic positivity, but it, it takes... The grief never goes away. It's, it, But you learn a lot out of it. And there's certainly a lot of appreciation that I have. And it, and maybe this is why I was a little more keen on seeing some of these cues. Mm. And when I would see, you know, friends who became moms or whatever, I would start seeing things and remembering my mom for, for certain things as well. So right. it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a way a into those memories, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. I, I mean, I think you're on to something. Like mom guilt is a thing mm-hmm. that women talk about. You know, we like go to each other's houses and have tea or wine and like, it's it mom guilt is what we talk about <laughs> so know. it's on the blogosphere it's, yeah, I wasn't right. wrong. it's there it's yeah. in it's in conversations with strangers in the coffee shop line like it's everywhere <laughs> uh and I, I i bet i bet that men do feel guilt um when they're trying to reconcile the irreconcilable right mm-hmm. like as we see shifts in attitude around who's responsible we see that like this new generation of dads does value spending more time with their kids mm-hmm. i'm sure that feeling is real and i think i've heard my own partner who's a man um express it when he misses things at home like misses a couple <laughs> bedtimes in a row or whatever but i think it's um partly the way that we raise women to feel guilty about things to not take up space and you know like to to, to be a, like a feminine and feminized body um in a patriarchal culture is there a biological guilt. element to it oh this is a tough one okay so i will confess to you i've never told this story to anybody sure this is like, <laughs> okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm doing this. When I, when my son was born in Halifax and I had been there for like 10 months. Like I got there, not pregnant, got pregnant and had him there and moved back to Vancouver two weeks later. Mm-hmm. And so that was a whirlwind. When he was born, like we were in the hospital, like my husband, Peter and I um, alone, you know, we didn't have family around because we, we were there and our families are here in Vancouver. And I remember like the first night being there, um, he was jaundiced. So the baby was in one of those like sun boxes next to me. Right. And my husband was like sleeping on a cot and I was like wide awake, even though I was so tired staring at the baby. (laughs) And I had this feeling of, Oh my God, it's just me. The buck stops with me. I am it. I am this child's advocate. And that is my new overwhelming responsibility. Yeah. I don't actually even think there's a lot of truth to that. Like, I have a family network. Like, if I'm gone, if I died that day, you know, people would, the kid would be fine. Like, But I had this, and I don't know if it was like feelings fueled by hormones. I can't really parse those feelings out, mm-hmm. you know, whether they were a product of my conditioning to take on full responsibility as the mother, whether they were hormones that flooded me as a birthing person, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I think there would be people who would argue on both sides of that. I'd probably fall somewhere in the middle. Sure. Yeah, so seems I, reasonable. Yeah, <laughs> like I, I always think like conditioning is very powerful in terms mm-hmm. of like even how we use our voices with children of different genders and that kind of thing. Mm. Um, but also, I felt like you know, like feelings are come they come from our body, they come from impulses in our body, they come from like blood rushing to our systems to regulate them. Mm-hmm. So, so I can't really separate those things out. But my husband didn't feel that way. In fact, what he expressed to me in the coming weeks was that he felt kind of obsolete. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, well, my work here is done. Uh, now what? Like, yeah. I think I'm finished as a human. <laughs> <laughs> Where I was like, I got to keep this thing alive. Like I had that strong. So I wonder if part of the guilt relates to that. Um, like something innate, but I, I often come back to conditioning because I think that we tell 
girls from an early age that they are caregivers and that they are meant to make people in the room feel at ease and that they are um, tasked with that responsibility. Yeah. I love what you just said there. I just got to keep this thing alive because I've heard that before. <laughs> it was overwhelming. <laughs> I was like, whoa, like, holy hell, I have a thing to do now. <laughs> and uh, I've certainly heard someone say that, that the goal for the day is just keeping this thing alive. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> We've already kind of touched on this and I, and I want to get a little more into it. So from my understanding, the growth of women in the formal workplace really boomed after the the modern war economies. You had men at work, women were put into manufacturing, and then from there, we started to see more women in the workplace and other fields as well. I mean, I think they had some traditional fields, quote unquote, but- Yeah, still today. Growth from for there, sure. yeah. When did the expectation or this ideal of the juggling mother really become part of the public consciousness? At least in the West, I should say. Yeah. Um, well, there's evidence of uh, women reckoning with this tension that goes back a century um, in terms of like housekeeping magazines and, and stuff like that. But I would argue that we saw this normalized in popular culture in the 1980s. Okay. That it went along with like the dramatic shift from the mid 70s to the late 80s of women entering the workplace so that we had the majority of women working mm -hmm. for pay. And it wasn't like women were suddenly doctors and engineers and stuff. It was women taking on part-time work, mm -hmm. sometimes multiple part-time jobs, like to kind of make ends meet um, with families who suddenly needed two earners. But that juggle was alive and well for most families all of a sudden. And not just like the kind of... Um, like some families, you know? So right. so while it started, I think, a lot earlier than that, uh, I would say the last 40 years, yeah. um, we've seen it. It's like a staple in how we represent women um, in in film and television, especially. So it's Reagan and Thatcher's fault, as always. <laughs> that we juggle. That was the cultural shift. I mean... Great, great punk rock music, but beyond that... Certainly, like, the individualism of that era... Uh, <laughs> has a lot to do with what supports we don't have for women to do less, mm -hmm. right? But also, yeah, I mean, the 80s doesn't sound like a great time. Uh, but also, I think... But that was sort of the start of whittling away at the, the, the social safety state. net. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the social safety net. Totally, that was. And I, I think also, um, because families needed it, uh, it was like, the mentality was like, there are individuals and families, right? Like the famous Thatcher quote is, there is no society. Right. We are not collectivist. We're selfish and we need to look out for ourselves. And if we take, if we strip away uh, this, the safety net, families will look out for number one and everyone will be fine. Uh, that didn't go well. It's still no. going poorly. <laughs> uh, yeah. So that's, I think, when it became totally normal to see those representations. Yeah. It's incredible that that was accepted as truth when all of human history has been, I mean, I mean, families have been collectivist, right? Yeah, I <laughs> They're don't not know. being yeah. atomized in that type of way. It's so true. This is a very short history of like late capitalism or neoliberalism or how, whatever we want to call it, right? It's, yeah. Uh, and also it's sort of an economic theory. I don't think, I don't know if she was necessarily commenting on a cultural truth. There's certainly mm -hmm. a lot of resistance to that idea. Sure. And we see families and communities not acting that way all the time. Let's talk about some of these media and cultural representations that we're seeing. How have they, I, I assume we're around the same age, but as we've grown up, how have they kind of changed or solidified in our generation? Sorry, the, the rep, can you say that again? Like the media or cultural representations. You've, you've again, you've touched on it, but I'm just thinking of like specific examples. For can, us. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And have they changed? Because I imagine you're an elder millennial or millennial. Yeah, I'm an elder millennial. Yeah. That's true. So <laughs> I'm 34. <laughs> okay, so I'm 35. So we're in the same okay. group. So I'm just wondering, like, as we've grown up and we look at these media representations of the juggling mother or mothers in general, has it changed? Has it solidified into something? Can you give me some specific examples, just in case there's people wondering, oh, what is, like, what's she talking about? Yeah, sure. Well, I, I will be honest. So I'm going to speak a little bit anecdotally um, just from memory because I focused my research on contemporary um, representation. So I can touch on those too. But what I remember from being a kid was the Cosby show. Mm -hmm. So 
that was an example um, of a of a woman of a mother who was I think she was a doctor mm-hmm. and her husband was a lawyer or vice versa she was a lawyer so 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 there was like a a, a professional woman um, at like the you know the upper echelons of her career and also doing this this motherhood thing mm-hmm. and playing this role so I think our generation was the first generation as babies of the eighties to be totally conditioned with this this kind of media. Mm-hmm. At the same time, there were still a ton of representations of like the homemaker right. uh, mother, especially like the sainted mother of, you know, Swiffer commercials and stuff like that. Swiffer has, you know, the Swiffer dad hashtag has taken <laughs> off since, but uh, like that was big in our in our day. Like the Mr. Clean was this like muscly guy who helped out our, our who secretly helped out our moms <laughs> with their role of cleaning the house. Right. And the mothers were keeping the household together because the dad himself was too incompetent or Oh, incapable. totally. The aloof interloper. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I mean, the seal clap thing is bang on. We still imagine dads to be this bumbling kind of like Ted Dumphy. There's another example of like the father, right? Um, from Modern Family. Right. Yeah. Um, useless. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think because of that trope, uh, our expectations of dads are low. Like the baseline is low yeah. <laughs> for dads. Yeah. Um, although I, I don't, I think that does a disservice to dads because the evidence does suggest that that men are far more interested in in taking care of their kids now mm-hmm. and shifting that load. Yeah. And so let's get into that. These media representations, when we look at them, how disconnected are they from reality? Because it sounds like they are, on one hand, glamorizing the juggling mother, which then creates these unattainable expectations for other women or mothers. And then on the other hand, they're like lowering the bar for men who actually are taking a greater role in domestic responsibilities. That Yeah, that's a great question. One of the representations that I mentioned by way of example is the film This Is 40, the Judd Apatow uh, movie. Okay, yeah. This movie? yeah, yeah. So this sort of exemplifies the thesis. This family, their struggles are financial, right? Like they, mm-hmm. the the record business or whatever the dad has um, isn't going well. He's also like sloughing money to his incompetent father or whatever. Um, whereas, and, and the woman has this store in Santa Monica that um, is, she's struggling to 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 have a make a profit to to cover everyone's expenses, mm-hmm. but it's a totally glamorized like cinematic version of this, right? Mm-hmm. Because they live in a mansion. It's actually like a renowned house in Brentwood, Los <laughs> Angeles, and like one of the most expensive postal codes in the country. Uh, the they have luxury SUVs. They are a white family. They don't experience racism. You know, mm-hmm. they their their tensions are are sort of farcical, and yet relatable. You know, like families right. can look at what they're experiencing with like the mom, like sneaking cigarettes at the side of the house or whatever, and, like and and see themselves in these jokes. And yet it's it's the Hollywood um, version of this. So this hardly represents most family struggles. Mm-hmm. It does. Um, I think that film is a commentary on the myth of the American dream and the the satisfaction that we're promised if we all just hustle. Yeah, they they turn out to not be very happy, and the couple isn't very bonded. But uh, yeah, the first thing I would say is there's a big distance between the privilege and affluence of cinematic life and and everyday realities. But what seems to strike a chord in terms of humor is when these people who don't look much like us as a general population are speaking some truth to the struggles of the moment. Mm-hmm. So there is that like. We, we do want that kind of, like, authenticity in our fairy tales now. Right. In order for it to There's be that funny. hook of truth into otherwise a very whitewashed, glamorized exactly. image. Yeah, yeah totally. Because we also want to look at, like, that kind of life when we are. It's partly, it's part of the escapist fantasy and, mm-hmm. and part of what drives us to consume, like, the desire for something that's unattainable. So when we talk about these expectations, we talk about the ideal of the juggling mother— why is it harder on women of color? I believe Michelle Obama even commented on Sandberg's lean in by saying like, this doesn't work all the time for all people. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, Sandberg's a good example, like went to Ivy's, like her, her, the way she leaned in was she mm-hmm. tapped her 
totally exclusive connections, right? Like and, and privileges. And yeah. privileges. Yeah. yeah. So in in getting um like the idea of asking women to comport themselves in such a way that resists structural discrimination like racism mm-hmm. um is impossible for women of color, right? Like uh they have to do more work and especially more emotional work in order to not be seen according to racist tropes, like, for example, the angry black woman at mm. the boardroom table and stuff like that. So so I think it's 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 a, a special cruelty to apply this individualist lean in kind of mandate um, to people in different social positions according to their privilege. Uh, because it's just way more work, and and it's impossible. You yeah. know, you can't unrace a legacy. You can't erase a, a, a legacy of white supremacy by um, being particularly competent that day in your job interview. Mm-hmm. And so that's how you get this double-edged sword, right? Like the juggling mother is doing harm to herself by not acknowledging that this type of lifestyle is not really healthy or sustainable. But then at the same time, by perpetuating that image. It's hurting women of color. Is that totally? I feel like you could be a spokesperson for the book. (laughs) You let me know. Good, you really all that together. I got a bunch of hustles. (laughs) I can I can tack on one more. (laughs) That's a problem of white feminism, though. I'll just like throw that in there, right? Like that, like the it's it's this is exactly what is wrong with like popular commercial white feminism is it's this idea that like if we act more like men because we are equal to men. patriarchy goes away that's that's not how it works (laughs) and that's super exclusionary to anyone who doesn't have that access to power yeah Yeah. i imagine this expectation is also generally harder for women who have children with disabilities i can see the racial end probably because i am a racialized person can you explain i guess it's just the same principles for for women or families that have children with disabilities well unique in that um Children with disabilities need support in the school system. Parents who themselves have disabilities need different kinds of support. Mm -hmm. So in an individualist society where we want people to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, disability is stigmatized in a unique way because it's seen as hampering productivity, Mm. right? And that is seen in our society as hampering goodness, right? Like value. So um, I think there are unique challenges that people with disabilities and parents of children with disabilities face in terms of stigma, both in terms of the cultural attitudes like stigma and also the material realities of needing more things. Like Mm -hmm. if you need to access a prescription and COVID, you know, like things take time. We don't have respect for time because it's not efficient for like people to need to do more things just to go about their daily routines. So that's an interest of mine that's sort of blowing up now as I as my kids are almost at school age. And I realize um, what you need to fight for, like how you how you would need to advocate uh, for a child with with diverse needs, and mm-hmm. and resist both a, a stigma and be practical about about needing more, right? Like that's the what is stigmatized, yeah, being yeah. inefficient. So I guess it's, it's similar in the fact, and in, in, in that it's a disadvantage that sort of changes your social social position with respect to privilege, but. Um, the challenges are, are different. Mm-hmm. Part of the problem, from what I can gather, is how family is perceived and organized in Western countries. Coming from a South Asian background, I know this to be true in other cultures as well. You have multi generational homes where domestic labor, although still largely split amongst women, seems to be a lot more quote unquote balanced. And the idea would be, you know, if someone has a child, the grandma comes in and she's really, you know, teaching and mentoring the new mom. And if they're younger sisters, they're also helping and learning so that when they have kids, they're sort of more prepared. And there, there seems to be this like transfer of generational wealth all at once in one household. And that's very common. And again, I speak for some South Asian households, but I know certainly in other cultures, this is how, how how things are done. Is this atomized nucleus family at the core of a lot of these issues? I think and again, so, this yeah. is new, right? Like we talked about this being quite a new phenomenon. The totally the nuclear family is a is a very modern Western construct, and I do think it's the problem. Like there are a couple <laughs> of great articles when COVID first hit that was like 
this is proving that the nuclear family is a sham. Like anybody who's alone with their kids right now wants to die. Like it was totally that bad. I've been actually really curious about this, um, about collectivism more broadly in different cultures, like a sense of duty, especially as we see tensions around COVID, like some people flaunting the rules, some people abiding by the rules. Like I've been wondering about what we've set ourselves up for, you know, in a in, a, in an individualist society. Um, but I wonder about mom guilt and if that feels different when the expectation is that the village will raise a child or at least even the kind of like extended family, even if it's sort of still biological kinship. Mm. Does it shift um, a sense of responsibility? Uh, I know, it, as you say, it still mostly shifts among women, but does it displace the mother as the primary figure um, responsible and in a healthy way, mm-hmm. in a way that allows that person to be like a fuller person mm-hmm. and a way it allows the child to have more relationships. Like that's yeah. good for the kid, right? Like I talked about this recently with someone, the issue of asking for help. So all over like the wellness culture right now, it's like asking for help is a radical act. Ask for help. You need it. Villages raise children. And I think that the why it's so difficult to ask for help is because you you feel like you need to take everything. You feel like you need to be capable of of taking care of your own family. Yeah. But I heard a philosopher. It's almost like, like a concession, right? It's a it's it's admitting weakness, right? Yeah. Definitely. But I I like heard a philosopher on, on another podcast flip it and say like, by being an a nuclear family, you are getting in the way of relationships if you don't ask for help like the Hmm. only way you're going to have like alternative kinship structures or your child is going to relate well to other adults is if you get out of the way and ask your sibling to take them to soccer that's the only way that they're going to have a relationship so so get out of the way like (laughs) so so i think flipping it that way makes it less about about mom guilt but i think that's a great question my my work has pertained specifically to uh Western culture and it's sort of like denaturalized whiteness and the nuclear family mm-hmm. as like the primary way of organizing society. Now I'm I'm curious to read more um, across different cultures in terms of like how that how how being a mother feels um, when the expectations are different. It just feels like the breakdown of that familial collectivism is as a result of urbanization, capitalism. You're you know. As young adults, you're moving away from your parents into the city or wherever else for work. Which is like a coming of age, right? It's seen as totally appropriate and actually like good, you know, (laughs) like morally superior to not doing that. Yeah, and there's certainly been benefits out of that for sure. But I think we can't ignore how this is a very new system for all of us in terms of what a family means. Totally. I mean, I I think that that is um, becoming really clear through stay-at-home orders Mm -hmm. you know like what have we done (laughs) i I find myself asking like why have we set things up this way yeah certainly independence is great and i don't want to romanticize living at home with a family like Mm -hmm. there's you know there are real struggles related to that um but it I'm, i'm hoping that it's a question that more people can ask on the idea of asking for help i'm just reminded of these friends that I have, they're parents, and uh, they had their first child, and the child had issues with the sleep schedule. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember hearing this story from them, and I thought it was so funny because they they said literally for three months they were struggling, uh-huh. to, and they were reading and they were trying to do it, you know, DIY or whatever. <laughs> and they finally caved, and they asked a child sleep specialist to come. And fix their kid. And they literally said it took one session. (laughs) And then their daughter was on a great sleep schedule. Like all of a sudden, it just clicked. And both of them were just like, you know, we thought it was this big thing of like, oh, we're bad parents if we bring in help or we're swallowing our pride, all this other stuff. And they're just like, we wish we could have those three months back if we just asked for this help right away. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's so funny. I, I, one thing I think about it, like in, in a similar way, like um, breastfeeding can be uh, not intuitive and challenging. Mm. Um, it seems like such a thing, like we, we imagine this as something that once you have a baby, you are able to do, right? Mm-hmm. Like other animals do it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like, it's it like yeah. a, the same with sleep, right? Like yeah. how hard is sleep? 
why do you have to put a baby to sleep? I really screwed that up <laughs> at the beginning too. <laughs> um, but I imagine like I have this sort of like utopian vision of what it might have been like before we had a, such a thing as a sleep consultant that you mm. could hire. What if like some people knew about this and passed that wisdom on right? because we lived in a little bit like in a, in a, in a more um, collectivist way or like a communal way. I guess I don't mean necessarily with collectivist values, but uh, where like oral histories were transmitted. Mm-hmm. And so I read the whole internet too and had very sleepless nights. In fact, I barely remember what I did. I was so <laughs> sleep deprived. Um, but that that's a really relatable yeah. um, feeling. And also like, I didn't want to hire a sleep consultant because I, I, can't, I was poor growing up. Like I thought I was going to be dissed as a yuppie that was my like discomfort with like outsourcing that like I was like oh god like a sleep consultant (laughs) you know like no I can't do that (laughs) yeah it's funny how we think that the internet has all the answers and you can do anything you can find a YouTube video or something but it's like there's still a lot of knowledge and a lot of like how to operate as a an adult that uh, (laughs) I don't know man like we still need therapists consultation yeah absolutely (laughs) Going back to this idea of capitalism or late capitalism, whatever you want to call it, like restructuring families, most families require a dual income household to stay afloat, which was not the norm before either. And especially if you have kids. So how much of what we're talking about is just a consequence of wealth inequality, stagnant wage growth, lack of well-paying manufacturing jobs, higher costs of living? And as we talked about earlier, you know, cutting away at the social safety nets, the welfare state. So how much of that is <laughs> is is like an economic problem? It's 100 percent. I mean, uh, my bias is that I'm like a Marxist feminist. Right. So I think it's exactly <laughs> that reason. Um, but I would trace it back to like the dawn of capitalism. You know, like when we when we set up systems where people suddenly exchange their work for a wage, we decided that that some of the work that was feminized that was traditionally being done by women would not be waged. Factory work would be waged. So there we have like the birth of this Mm. split. Um, And that's not that old either. It's several hundred more years old than the 1980s are. Mm. But, um, and and then things seem to accelerate from there in terms of like inequality uh, between the post-World War II era and today because mm-hmm. of exactly what you mentioned, like the kind of erosion of of the safety net. And I guess um, I see it so clear. Like, I just think that this is the reason. Um, <laughs> and, and it frustrates me that um, we can still be so conditioned to take on these roles. Yeah. So I don't want to oversimplify it. I, I think that th- that's the material cause. But I wrestle with my own conditioning um, all the time as I study this. So I think it runs pretty deep what what we expect of each other um, in terms of those roles, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Can I be your spokesperson for one second? Yes. Okay. So when you're promoting (laughs) yourself, stay away from that Marxist feminist label. (laughs) I I, I wait until minute whatever we're at. A lot of stigma. It's a very heavy label. Yeah, you know, stick with the anti-Sheryl Sandberg. You That's don't a see good me one. on the cover of magazines, right? Like, no, it's not. Yeah, they, we don't. We don't like to put uh, the yeah <laughs> the records on display. We've seen the BC NDP government. I want to bring it back to provincial politics sure. and what's happening here because that's a big theme of the show. We've seen the BC NDP government put so much promise and, to be fair, unprecedented amounts of investment in childcare. I think it's fair to say, you know, you can't just like snap your fingers and suddenly you're going to have available, affordable childcare everywhere. But from my understanding, they seem to be making a lot of progress and they seem to at least prioritize this as, as a big part of their overall governance. What's your take on what this provincial government has done so far on this file? I can make this answer really simple. I think that for all that we could do to reduce wealth inequality, the main thing that we need to do is provide accessible, good quality, affordable childcare. Mm-hmm. So for me, that's like what it comes down to as the as the number one priority, as the band-aid for right now. Because not only does it reduce um, the outcomes of income inequality between women, but also outcomes for kids across a lot of metrics. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know what it's like to be in government and try to roll something like this out and then have a pandemic hit. Yeah. But I can say <laughs> that I was shocked as someone whose kids were in care 
at how fast subsidies got to childcare centers. Okay. Because my fees were reduced, I think, by September after the government was in in the spring of their of their first um, term. So I've been impressed. Like I, I actually think that that is going to make a marked difference, and I I think there's a long way to go because. We have a shortage of spots, so scarcity is a problem mm-hmm. that's still driving prices up. Uh, and there's a lot of misinformation. Like I remember hearing at the time that uh, individual providers, like in-home daycares, were nervous to apply for the subsidy the way it was written mm. because it seemed to require this sort of like opening of their books to the government in a way that I think made people feel insecure. Mm. Um, they they thought that that like you know that transparency required was going to effectively like harm them somehow uh, so i think a, a information campaign alongside what's been done would be helpful as well going forward but i would really like to see the ten dollar a day promise that that they've made and, and i don't think that it's not here because of a lack of political will on their part i think it's a massive undertaking yeah absolutely people don't make enough money in the sector no. you see turnover right <laughs> like so so it's a problem to make it cheaper mm-hmm I want to end our fantastic chat taking on the role of douchebag dude. I want to give you a douchebag dude response. This oh, is man, not just like real life. Just, oh, come on. <laughs> no, not not your dude. life. I mean, like, <laughs> oh, like your life. life. What do you get? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you were like, by the way, behind the scenes, no, no, douchebag. <laughs> so I want to be very clear. This is not me asking okay. this, okay. but as you literally just said, I'm sure someone approaches you with this, whether it's online or in the comment section, whatever. What do you say to the dude who responds, well, I thought women wanted it all. Why are you complaining? It's too much. (laughs) I would like, so so 10 years ago, I would have fought with that person at the pub for hours. And now I would just wink and smile and say, it's all too much. We don't want it all. That's the, that's the trite answer. But I, I will say that, like, I love my job. I don't want to back off. I love writing and publishing. I love teaching. I love interacting with colleagues at the university through service work. Mm-hmm. And I also love being a mom. Now that I've settled into the identity and feel like it is empowering and um, rewarding, I don't want to not do that. What I would love is if I didn't have to work 60 hours a week. Um, and I like, so I would love to s- set boundaries and have mm-hmm. support for if someone gets sick, like, can I take a sick day? I'm not in a, even though I'm in a super privileged position in terms of my job, it's not that flexible. Like it, it's seen as very flexible, but I, there aren't sick days in the traditional sense. And so right. there, there are things that I would do to, to, to set boundaries around my job. And there are things I would, I guess, ask for in terms of how we organize um, expectations on moms and family life, mm-hmm. especially for for families of, of less means, but but also just in general. Like, I would love if there was more robust community center programming and more parks in East Van and, you know, things like that. So, so yeah, I want to be a mom and I, and I love my career. So, work-life balance books are targeted right at me, but <laughs> I, I would like to contain the amount of work that they both take. Yeah. That's how you have to sell the revolution, like new parks, community centers. This is going to be good for everybody, guys. <laughs> Working six hours a day, four days a week is going to be great for everybody. That You know, I actually love that you brought that up, and I wasn't thinking about this before, but we've also eroded boundaries in terms of work. Yeah. So before you go to work, you know, in and out, and now you bring it home with you. It's on your phone, and your phone also doubles as this, like, perpetual entertainment social device that you're also on. So you're also working while doing stuff on your phone. Like the, all those boundaries are gone. And so even the traditional 40 hour work week for a lot of people, particularly who work white collar jobs, <laughs> you're, you're working way more than 40 hours a week. Yeah. And that's the expectation. And it's certainly not just about moms. Yeah. That's totally the expectation. And it's valued like colleagues who leave their phone on and who respond to an email at 10 are seen as doing what we want them Keeping to be busy. doing. Totally. Doing busy. <laughs> but like, I, I, yeah. So I guess I, I think that the message is pretty palatable here when I just frame it as like, look, man, this is going to bring women up, but it's going to be better for everybody. Mm-hmm. Like this is going to allow people to spend time with their kids, regardless of their gender, whether or not they're partnered, you know, like yeah. 
work less and um, think about the conditions of our work for sure. And if I were to give any advice to individual moms who are struggling with this, like I, I actually I hate doing that because it's the trap. Of, yeah, you like, just said. The lean in shit, right? Like now, the, now like, you're dishing now out tips and advice. tricks. Yeah, exactly. Like screw the tips and tricks. <laughs> but I would say it's sort of like the inverse of tips and tricks. It's like the set boundaries thing. And mm-hmm. I'm biased because I'm really bad at that. So I know that's something that I, a message that I've heard. Like don't have boundaries, then you're a better person. But I, as I crawl back from burnout in this <laughs> pandemic, I realize that boundaries might set me free in the end. I love that, Amanda. This was very enlightening. <laughs> I am so far removed from my wheelhouse on this stuff, but I'm fascinated by it. And I just want to tell you that, you know, I get PR people and some people directly and even just fans with like guest suggestions, get this person on the show. And I love that. You know, I love when people reach out regardless of what they're saying, but it is a bit of a high bar to clear when presented with the, you know, you should have this person on the show. People have done it, certainly, and I encourage them to do so because I want to have conversations that challenge me. But I have to really see something that I find provocative or insightful and informative, something that I think will leave the listeners walking away going, oh, wow, I didn't think about that or I learned something. Or I want to buy that book. Yeah, exactly, (laughs) which we'll get into. But when that request came in from Jen Wint, and shout out to Jen, I was like, yeah, 100%. This sounds amazing and and interesting. And I'm actually almost like honored to be trusted with this topic. And if this is someone's first foray into these ideas, I'd like you to give a call to action. You can plug the book, of course, but uh, just a general call to action. Okay. Well, first I have to just like provide a corrective note here for that little monologue of yours. You have been very humble, but you're giving me synthesis of my own ideas. So thank you very much. You do not sound like you're out of your wheelhouse whatsoever. Um, I guess I would first plug childcare. If it's something that, that you don't understand, like if you don't understand why it should be a priority, then do some reading because feminists have been working on this for 60 years as the mm-hmm. thing that could really help with gender inequality. Uh, so it's like really that's a, that's a simple thing and the other thing would be like start if if you're not already reflecting on the ways in which you are complicit in the way work is organized because we all are just like we're all complicit in the way um the planet is melting you mm-hmm. know it doesn't need to be an intimidating feeling it doesn't need to involve guilt or shame but i honestly think that that will allow us to start to forge connections with other people and having these conversations and uh, we need allyship um when, if we want to change the way work is organized, it's going to take a lot of um, collective action. So mm-hmm. it starts with our insides. I really believe that. And please plug your book. Oh, okay. So Socials. the juggling mother, the juggling mother coming undone with the age of ang- uh, in the age of anxiety. Uh, you can find it at ubcpress.ca. But also, I recommend Massey Books in Chinatown if you're here mm-hmm. in Vancouver, um, or you can just call your local bookstore if you want to support local and save the cost of shipping yourself because they'll ship it to themselves, and then you can go pick it up from them. So that would be great. Um, and on on social media as um, Spin Doctor Dr Spin Doctor Watson. <laughs> I love it, Amanda. You're a gem. Are we best friends now? We're best friends. I was actually going to put a call out. I don't need to anymore. <laughs> Calling new best friends. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much. This was a pleasure. People, her book, The Juggling Mother: Coming Undone in the Age of Anxiety, is available right now from UBC Press. She is a lecturer in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at Simon Fraser University. She is Dr. Amanda Watson, and I am Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace. <laughs>